Hi, I'm Sam Simon, and I'm the grandpa, and I always think deep. Hi, I'm Emily Simon. I'm the granddaughter, and I'm always wondering, in every conversation we have, why does grandpa always think deep? Good morning, Emily. Good morning, Grandpa. It's so good to see you after being well, in New Zealand. <laughs> welcome back from New Zealand. Thank you. Thank you so much. You were gone for a full month, so that is... Before you could even ask, it was awesome. The last episode was pre-recorded, but I'm, I'm so interested, and I hope our audience is. So let me just set up. It was it school trip. You went with other students. And it's a semester, a January semester, right? Yes, it is. So it's a trip with the University of Delaware. There were only 13 of us in total. It was like a super tight group, which is a lot of fun. So we went to New Zealand for a month. We took two intensive courses. One was communication, happiness, and well-being. And the other was also a communications class. It was intercultural health communication, which was very interesting to learn about as you were traveling around and seeing all these different things. So very interesting. I want to talk about today about the Māori culture. The Māori are the indigenous peoples of New Zealand. And they definitely have a very big presence there. So can um, I just make sure we understand I understand it? Modi, M-O-D-I. Yeah, so it's like the way you pronounce it is it, it's actually spelled M-A-U-R-I. But really the way you pronounce it is if you say the word moldy and then you take out the L. Mori. That's like really the actual pronunciation of it. And it's not how it's spelled, which is very silly because Mori was never a written language, so they could have just written it the way it's pronounced, but they didn't, which I feel like happens a lot with languages that are written in English or in Latin letters. But anyways, not the point. So the Mori are the indigenous peoples of New Zealand. They share a common language, but there's a bunch of different tribes. And one of the most interesting things that I learned about the Mori people is that in the Mori culture, when Someone is introducing themselves. When you say, like, who are you? They don't just mean, like, who are you specifically? What are you doing? Where do you live right now? Like, those are the things generally that you want to find out about a person. Like, when you first meet them, it's just who are you? What have you done with your life? In America, that's what we expect generally when we say, like, when you're starting to get to know someone. In the morning culture, where someone is introducing themselves, they say what they do, but then they'll also talk about, you know, where they're from, where is their tribe, who are their ancestors, they're saying is we want to know where is your mountain where is your river where do you come from having a sense of place is incredibly important to the Māori culture where is your mountain where is your river and knowing that is incredibly important genealogy which I think you'll find interesting grandpa I know you've done a lot of work on genealogy is also very important but it's not just genealogy the way we think about it it's very linear like oh you have your parents your grandparents your great-grandparents and you kind of just keep going up and back and like up and up and up and back it's more about like this web of people who you're connected to, both from the past and in the present, and knowing sort of where you stand in the social order that's very centered around family. It strikes me in a current moment in this country, so I want to check what I'm hearing. Yeah. So, and I'll be interested in how the non, so those are the natives. I, well, let me answer this question. So, who are the non-native? That is, who are the, where do the, other current larger population mm -hmm. in New Zealand, they come from Australia. They're, they appear to be Anglo-Saxon, but maybe... Well, yes. So, obviously, the British were the first non-Polynesians to come to New Zealand. Uh, 
Okay. So it was Captain James Cook. He came and he was like, ooh, we would like to do trade. And the Modi, they traded among their own tribe. And so they were like, trade? Yeah, we like trade. And so they were like totally into it. And so then more British people came here to start trading. And then there was, as is a brief history of New Zealand. I don't know how much of this you want. I'll be brief. Okay, I'll be brief. So then we have, as uh, trade with the British start to increase. So we get the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi, which is actually went to the place where that was signed. So among the Maori parties there, they were told, this is basically just going to say that the British has jurisdiction over all of the foreigners who come into trade. The British were told, this is going to give you control of the whole place. Now, their official line is, it is unknown whether or not it was an honest mistake or if it was deception. I'll leave you to make an opinion about that for yourself. And there's still disputes over the interpretation of the Treaty of Waitangi today, but that's generally considered like the founding document of New Zealand. So it's a pretty unique document. There's nothing like it in the whole of the British Empire, which is like a lot of the world. And so after the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi, the Māori started to be displaced of their land. It was a lot of logging. Logging first the native trees and then planting of trees actually from California because they grow really fast in the volcanic soil, like much faster than they do in California. But anyways, the point is... So that was sort of the beginning of like settlement. That's not just trade, but actually living there. So mostly it was, yes, British people. But over time, there have been many immigrants from all over the world. People who come, there are a lot of immigrants from like East Asia and Southeast Asia. There's like a lot of like Thai and Chinese and Vietnamese restaurants you'll find all over the place. So I want to stop you because I want to come back to the point I was trying to make. And Noya reminded me if I presume I knew it at one time in my life, totally forgot about it. So New Zealand and America have somewhat parallel kinds or similar kinds of beginnings. We had a native population, the British and the Spanish, but Europeans came over and ultimately became the dominant culture. We now, of course, are hundreds of years older. I guess New Zealand's similar, if not older. Yes, New Zealand was caught, it's not in the 1800s that the British first arrived there. Interestingly, that resulted in a lot less death from disease because medicine was more advanced at the time. Additionally, the Māori had very good medicine that they had developed. There were pandemics. Smallpox, I think, came with the British to the United States and killed a lot of natives, certainly in Mexico. But the narrative that I'm hearing in our world, and now, of course, maybe you are just referring to the narrative of the Modi. Yeah, you got it. You got it. You, you can say it. So there is this... It's viewed as woke in this country, uh, acknowledging, right. acknowledging our heritage and the native land we're all on and that sort of thing, and including, you know, traits around us that define our communities in some way. That's being almost demonized politically in this country that, you know, if you're woke, if you behave that way, say those things, you're part of a woke culture and it's horrible. You're American and Whereas you're saying in New Zealand, at least in the native world, that is a, and I guess my question, is that part of the larger culture as well, or is that primarily that tribal culture? No, I think it's actually really part of the larger culture. I mean, Mori are much more present. Just generally, you go around, you see like a lot of them are actually tour guides. They're very happy to show you around their land. It's funny because it's kind of like a lot of people go to New Zealand because like, it's beautiful in the natural scenery and we're like, yes, like we love to like share our land and like show you our land. We're happy that you're here and that you're like helping to fuel our economy. And so like we, a lot of our tour guides when we went various places were actually Māori and they were happy to show us their land, which was very interesting. But yes, I do actually do notice a lot of this stuff kind of among the dominant culture. Like people don't get 
it's something I was actually I wondered myself, and I don't think I fully have all the answers. I don't think I talked to enough people about that. But I mean, they're just much more present in they're not pushed off onto reservations made invisible. Because there was like during the period of industrialization, like a lot of Maori like migrated to cities. And so there a lot of them live in cities. Obviously, a lack of Western education made it difficult for them to get good paying jobs, which led to poverty, which leads to problems. But they're they're just much more present and their culture is acknowledged and respected. They, I think I did notice like a lot of the people who are not Marty, like they acknowledge that that's the land that they're on and they respect Marty culture generally from what I saw. But you know, I was only there for a month. Okay. But did, did, did you pick up or sense a, and then I want to come back to the, well, I'll, I'll say this. I think this is part of the, at least in my mind, the, the effectiveness of communications I think that in the United States, we go back to sort of now on the topic of health communication and any kind of communication. If you're trying to share a message and, and persuade people to behave, when I say people, large numbers of people, right? it's important to speak to them in a language and in a way that they understand. And it sounds like they're culturally just embedded, maybe I'm projecting, so I from checking that. Yeah, I know. Yeah. In, in the, yes, much smaller world of New Zealand, is there more awareness of both differences and similarities that there's nothing wrong with being Modi, there's nothing wrong with being New Zealand or Chinese or Filipino, if that's where you came from, and acknowledging the need, if you want to communicate something, you need to speak in the language of those who are receiving it, including the cultural, conceptual language. Have I thought of something right? Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely very important. So did you see that? Did you experience that as you studied the communication that they were, I presume that part of what you're doing is trying to examine how that communication was executed in New Zealand or... Oh, we didn't actually really, we didn't really look into it that much. I will say one thing that very interesting that I did learn so at the very beginning, we talked to, we went on a hike of Mount Eden, and we our tour guide was Marty, a man named Dane, very nice guy. He actually was a descendant of the man who was once the chief of the town that was on the hill, the mountain that we climbed. And he was saying to us, like, kind of after we came back down our hike, that, like, certain types of therapy, like Western psychotherapy, like, doesn't necessarily work for Marty people because it doesn't make sense in that cultural context. And because it doesn't take a holistic enough view of health. And I thought that was very interesting. I didn't fully understand why that is. I mean, I'm sure it's true. But yeah, you have to talk to people where they're at, sort of in their language and using their culture. Absolutely. Yeah. So what else did you learn about New Zealand? And maybe more, you know, what are you bringing back after that experience for you? I think I'm still kind of unpacking that. <laughs> well, that's okay. So I... I, in 19, I think it was 79, I traveled to Australia. Very different place. Different place? Yes. I hadn't thought about it being that different. I guess I, I was thinking a bit of a similar. Just, but it was my big travel. I was, much, I was in, my, I mean, in my 20s. And I was actually went there as a substitute speaker for Ralph Nader. Mm-hmm. I do think the people I spoke to were very disappointed. <laughs> But that, at the end, to be expected. But I was 
What is it? That would have been 79. So I was working for TRAC. What is that for our listeners? Telecommunications Research and Action Center is a consumer group to do represent consumer interests in communications. But Ralph wanted me to substitute. It was very nice. I met a lot of people. I got to visit their parliament in Adelaide, I think is where it is. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, that sounds right. Anyways. But you know, the culture was it felt like so this was in seventy nine. It felt like being in the United States in nineteen fifty. Really? Yeah, the just there's no self pumping. I guess I don't know why this is what I'm thinking, but the gas stations reminded me because you still had people pumping for you, and it was just so. You still have people pumping for you in New Jersey. That's true, and it just it felt so communal and interesting. So I mean, you've done it. I guess younger than I was. And you've also been to Israel, so you've, you've had a lot of international travel. But I was just curious, as coming back, and if you, you're still, maybe your bottom line is you're still unpacking. Maybe. Well, there's another interesting thing I noticed. So one of the coolest parts of the trip that we had was we got to go on a three-day river trip through the Wanganui River. It's a river that kind of winds through the mountains of New Zealand. Absolutely beautiful. And we were canoeing. So we went, like, we went canoeing all day, and then we would stop at like, a campground and camp. And we did this for like three days. It was very wet, but it was also very, very interesting. And our tour guides, they were Maori, and this was like the land, the land that they're from. And they were showing us their land, and it was absolutely beautiful. And one thing that I noticed that was really, really interesting was that they didn't know a whole lot of like scientific facts about like the river. Like I remember I asked them like before we even went, I was like, what's the average depth of the river? And they all kind of had like these blank looks on their faces. And one guy goes, sometimes I can stand it, and sometimes I can't. And I was like interesting and then later i was going through and as we were going through the river i had all these questions like the mountains there's these striations along the river and i was like oh like what kind of frog is that they didn't know but they could tell you all the different types of plants that were kind of up along the river and so i was thinking about it and i was like i feel like this culture is one of like i basically only know stuff that i need to know to be able to do my thing right i don't know how deep the river is i just know that sometimes i could stand in it sometimes i can't Obviously, knowing the different types of plants isn't going to be important if you're in sort of a society that's like kind of coming out of like a more traditional agrarian society, you're going to know the native plants, but you don't need to know what kinds of rocks they have. That's not necessary information. And I kind of got this attitude from Morty people who talk to you generally about science. They kind of like derided Western science, like, oh, these Western scientists, they would show up and they would just tell us stuff we already knew. Like, for example, there are these plants that, like, have some kind of healing property. They don't remember what they were. And the morning I was saying of, like, the plants that the caterpillars eat are the ones that are best for you. You know, you try, you could try to find, like, find, like, a leaf that hasn't been eaten by caterpillars or has the leaf now we're holding it, but you actually want to hold more holes in it. And Western science has shown that that's because, like, the more it's chomped on, the more the plant has to, like, secrete this thing that is good for the plant helps it heal and also is good for you. It helps you heal. And the morning we were like, yeah, like, what do we need Western science for? We already knew that. They, they don't really care about the why so much as like what they need to know in order to be healed. And another thing, as we were kept going down the river, they kind of started talking to us about like more and more different things. And one of the guys who's really into Joe Rogan, and he was kind of just like, oh, he, he's like such a popular podcaster. Like he's like the number three podcaster in the world. Like, why don't you guys like him? Really? Because the stuff he says isn't true. And then another guy was like, oh, like, yeah, I think, like, Trump is, like, really funny. I think he'd be a great leader for the Morty people. And we were like, why? And he was like, oh, well, he's really funny. Like, he says these funny things. And it got me thinking. I was like, I feel like this culture here, and this is not all of Morty culture. I think it's just one part of it, 
is like, I only know what I need to know to be able to do my thing. And that's why they like Trump, because I just saw him say some funny things. They like Joe Rogan, he said some stuff and they liked it and they didn't think to seek out more information or seek out information that they generally don't need to be able to do whatever they do. And the thing is that modern democracy kind of requires that people actively seek out information they don't necessarily need to function in their daily lives. So I guess the, the question it then becomes like, you know, what do you do? How do you have democracy in a country when you have a culture or a subculture where people don't seek out information they don't need to know, which kind of is required in order for a functioning democracy to happen? Another example, and the guy said he didn't like Jacinda Ardern, and we kind of asked him why, they like, didn't really give us any answers. It's like he just didn't really seek out further information other than like sort of headlines that he saw. So anyway, so these are all food for thought. Food for thought. What are your thoughts? So, but I'm wondering about the larger culture. So the Modi, but on the answer, I I think you you and Graham are going to disagree. I think this graph oh boy. is going to go deep. I don't think this is all about culture. Definitely meant more. No, no, but you were asking about the issue. The yeah. issue. How do you have democracy when you have a subculture that Hold doesn't on. seek out information they don't know? Hold on, Emory. I'm trying to say is the idea that democracy requires that we know things we don't need. I don't know if you meant to say it quite that way, but that's a lot of thought I heard you say. Most of what I said. Now, I guess if, do I need to know, think about that when I brush my teeth in the morning, or do I need to brush my teeth in the morning, or, you know, if my living comes from plumbing, why do I need to know how the Senate votes on bills and what's the veto, how to override vetoes and civic there is? Well, I guess that's an interesting issue. I don't know that we have to know those things. And then you're reminding me of the new uh, of a book that's out there, and maybe this fits into the conversation. There is in America a meritocracy that is developing, and there's a book by a Harvard ethicist called The Tyranny of Merit. And you made me think about it by Michael Sandel. It's Sandel, Sandel, I think is how to pronounce it, where he's, his argument is, the American culture's got the got this thing is you got to know everything to be part of upper class or earn a living or to be good. Therefore, you have to have college education. Therefore, you have to be educated in all these things, as opposed to simply being good at hammering nails in buildings or being a great tour guide because you know what you need to know to do what you're doing, which is what I sort of interpret in part that. Those who seem to be happy and do well and know what they're doing, do it well, don't seem to care about the other stuff. And the, the meritocracy that he's talking about is, in America, the respect is only for those who have college education. There's a drive that everybody has to get a college education, otherwise you're not good enough or you're not, you're not part of the best part of society. That doesn't sound like, I can't tell whether you're talking about just the tribal part or the larger part? The larger thing. So in in New Zealand, you don't quite see that attitude. Is that correct? The attitude of like, you need to know everything. You need to know everything. And well, I'm interpreting that to know everything, you need a higher formal education. I don't know if I was there long enough or talk to enough people to be able to sort of get a sense for that. But this idea, you know, why do I need to know all that if what I'm doing is, I'm doing a good job on what I'm doing. It's meeting my life's goals. Well, I, I think what I'm trying to get at is less about like the college education and more just like even having a desire to truly understand 
So one of our tour guides, he was talking about, oh, I don't like to send our derm because I don't think that she gives Marty tribes enough autonomy. And we were like, okay, like, so how does she do that? And then he didn't really, like, have answers. He didn't really, like, actually have any answers as to why he would, you know, vote against her or why, how exactly she had a, a part in doing the thing. He cares about it. He does care about it, but he also didn't really think to actually seek out real information about this problem, how it works and what he can actually do about it like what the institutions are that create change and it's just kind of like uh this thing is happening to the government and this represents the government i don't like this person well of course i, I tend to think about the typical MAGA american from the same way <laughs> making this political so all right let's be just get a little bit more we're, we're we talked a long time so i guess like it's more about like it's not like not about having you have to have a college education to try to read the newspaper or to understand what you can actually do about the issues you're passionate about instead of just sort of taking this one political figure and blaming them. All your problems on that person. Right. And I want to come back, though. This is interesting, but I want to come back to just the trip experience. Yeah, I'm sort of jealous because I didn't at your age get the chance to go to Australia and learn. Or to... And it was New Zealand, not Australia, a very different place. Yeah, I mean, that. yes, New Zealand, a different, very different place. I didn't even go to... The only reason I went to Mexico is because I lived in El Paso and <laughs> it was right across the border and we went to get liquor because, you know, we did bad things in Juarez. I won't go there. So I'm a little bit jealous of that great experience you had. And I think it's great that, you know, the world is shrinking because of transportation. Heck, I, you're 19. I didn't get to fly in an airplane until I was 20. I think it was the first time I ever flew in an airplane. Oh, I remember... When the wheels were going down, I panicked, thinking we were going to crash. <laughs> no, but it's a sort of a also just I think it's great to get these experiences when you're young and to get, you know, I, I love that you've got to focus on the culture and the native culture in New Zealand. And do you have a, maybe even as a way to end this, though, do you have a point of view of why their health communication may have been more successful than that in America? Why didn't no, I I actually don't know. Do you think I, they spoke in ways that the Modi, for example, would hear and understand? And were one of the interesting things I heard people the Modi people we talked to was that one of the things that the government did really well was they gave Modi tribe autonomy to be able to sort of have their own response to the lockdown. But no one questioned like the lockdown itself. Like, they were like giving the resources that they needed to provide for their communities. During a time when, like, to make sure that people were able to get groceries, especially the elderly or immunocompromised, and that they're able to arrange all that for themselves. And I, so I think that people were less mad about the lockdown, at least in the Marty community, they're like, well, this might suck, but at least we're being given the resources we need to be able to have food and do our own thing and do what works for our community, which I think decreased some anger about the lockdown. I don't know about like general society, but they give them communities the resources they need to help those who need it in their community. I think that decreased the anger towards the lockdown. But one that I thought, maybe I misunderstood, that one of the reasons to go to Australia and to study was yeah. their, the perception that New Zealand was a highly successful in dealing with the impact of the pandemic and that their communication to the public was particularly good. And they had great compliance and that it's, I believe this is correct, that they got out of it very much more quickly. Oh, gosh, they got out of it after, like, two months. 
Yeah, so he communicated with the public very well. I guess it was a long time ago. They're like, you asked me about COVID and like the lockdown? Like, oh, it was like, that was so long ago. I don't know. I think there are stalkers in this community. People, it's much less, much less individualist. It's also a more socialist country. People are more okay with the government providing social supports. I mean, they've got universal health care. Interestingly, with the universal health care. Okay, to your question about college earlier. There's much less pressure to go to college to get a stable career that has good insurance because they have universal health care. It's totally okay to just like kind of get jobs, bounce around, do different things, get experience, and then maybe get like a higher paying job. But it's, it's fine to just bounce around and do this and do that because they have universal health care. There's no pressure to like go like be on this one track to get this career and then you're on this career path and then you're getting this experience. You can get this and get more money and get better health care coverage. Because they have universal health care. So it's like, if I don't want to have a lot of big fancy things, you don't have to worry about getting a job that pays well, getting a job that's stable, keeping your job. You can just bounce around, do whatever you want, kind of just do whatever you feel like. Like, oh yeah, like I could just bounce around. I could do this for a while. I could do that. Maybe I could work here. And there's much more like flexibility. And I think it really comes down to the universal health care. I mean, it's like just a very much more chill vibe. And like, oh, you have to like get this career, do the career path. Da, 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 da. I want to end on that statement because you just gave me a huge aha. Emily. I'd love to hear it. Emily taught grandpa something. And maybe you'll teach everybody something. And it's such an obvious point. And that is, if our basic and essential needs are met by the community, communally, mm -hmm. it increases freedom. It does. And that when that happens, we have greater ranges of choices and options to shape and manage our own lives. That a system that depends on the wealthy slash corporate interest and private interest to provide a benefit for you if you live your life a particular way, and that the only way to live a protected Fear. life right. is, is if you live in a particular way and do a certain thing, that there are range, ranges of options and choices and flexibility for people to be autonomous and live meaningful lives is enhanced by universal needs being met by the community, and that is done through you know, the institutions of government. And maybe that's why it's called socialism. Such a demonized word. But you just said that in a way that I don't think I've heard that articulated before. And I think it's worth leaving on that. Yeah, I think that's definitely something we talked about in terms of community and how we seem to notice everywhere that, like, people value having things for the whole community than just having things for themselves. We went to a lot of beaches, a lot of beach towns. And nowhere did I see any big, fancy five-star hotels. But you know what we did see? We saw public parks that were super green and incredibly well-kept. We saw sidewalks that were clean. We saw public water fountains that didn't look absolutely disgusting. We saw everywhere that people really care about what is best for the community as a whole, and they would rather have a strong and healthy community and provide for that community than to just provide fancy things for themselves. Well, it sounded... You're going to have to take the family on a tour of Australia. I mean, uh, New Zealand. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that is just such a wonderful thing to have seen. It was well, really cool awesome. to see. No, People it's seem happy. People seem really happy there. I, mean, I think New Zealand's like one of the happiest countries in the world, right up there, very high up there. But the underlying concept that when basic needs are met, that you enhance people's freedom and opportunity 
to have meaningful lives and freedom. That freedom means not being forced into niches based on basic health things. Of course, we, the other part of that is the disparity in wealth so that there is a super wealthy group that can live well in that world. It gives average people more power in some ways to live the same sort of luxury, not luxury, but right. it's just life, a life of options that the wealthy do who feel that they can get their basic needs met well, regardless of things. So that's really wonderful. And the houses I noticed are also generally smaller there. You just want big houses. Most of them are one story, maybe two stories. I didn't see any big houses like we have here. But the thing I kind of forgot I learned until you reminded me of it. So we went to do a volunteer program where we basically volunteered to plant native plants in wetlands to restore the health of wetlands because wetlands help to clear out water and like absorb stuff before it gets to the ocean and keep the water clean. And we were just talking with the people who like worked there. I'm like, oh yeah, I like I do this. I jump around, I do this. And it was just like, it was such a different attitude. And like people we talked about the hostel were like, oh yeah, I think I'm like, I mean, I'm from England, but I've been here. I've been working for a while. I might go to Australia, do some work there, like living here, like living, working, and traveling. And then you just bump, you just bounce around, go live in different places, do different things. And it's just so different. No pressure. So it's a good conversation. And we'll pick this up in two weeks. Pick it up very soon. Uh-huh.